This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Okay, everybody, we are here on the Right Way Podcast. My name is Lynn Yowett. I'm the author of The Silent Listener. And boy, I cannot wait to talk to Sam. This is a great podcast. Hope you're all tuned in, got something really amazing to drink or eat or sit on while you listen to this incredible podcast. Well, thank you so much for that introduction there, Lynn Yowett. Uh, hello to you, everyone out there in digital land listening to this episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. person whom you just heard introducing this episode quite uh, spectacularly, I might add, uh, was Lynn Yowett. Lynn Yowett is the person whom I spoke to today, today's guest, as it were, if you wanted to call it a different name. Uh, Lynn Yowett and I discussed her debut novel, The Silent Listener. The Silent Listener has been called an historical fiction novel, uh, which makes perfect sense because it was it's set in three different timelines or time eras settings. Uh, but yeah, it follows one family, uh, one central character, I'd argue, the central character is Joy, young Joy. Uh, dealing with her uh, monstrous, I think is the only way to describe it, monstrous father and his abuse, uh, or suffer, the abuse that she suffers at the hands of her father. Uh, as such, I wanted to give a trigger warning now due to the nature of the discussions which we had with, or that I had with Lynn. Uh, everything is discussed in detail, so domestic violence, spousal abuse, child abuse, uh, the list goes on. Uh, on those offshoots as well. So if you uh, feel that you might be triggered by listening to this discussion, I strongly advise you not to do so. But in the interim, I wanted to give a big digital round of applause to Lin Yao at talking to me about her incredible debut novel, The Silent Listener. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this beautiful Friday afternoon. Hey, Dawn. I'm good, I'm good, except for all those things we were just talking about, pandemics, protests, earthquakes, but, you know, other than that, excellent. Yeah, look, yeah. And your hair does look very good, by the way. I'm 10 yeah, out of 10. thank you. Absolutely yeah. proof. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. Two tons of product, you know. So well, you've, you've given, yeah, you've given it a good look. With me, it's just, um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've just recently had a haircut because my, my beautiful girlfriend just got, um, we got some clippers. Oh. And uh, it's a bit uneven at the top. It could do with a bit of fixing up, but I reckon for the first four a.m. to hairdressing, um, my girlfriend's done pretty well. <laughs> does look good. Thank you. Look, I think you've listened to a few episodes of the podcast. You know how I like to start things. is to always ask, <clears throat> where did the original idea originate for The Silent Listener? Because I saw, I think, somewhere... I don't know if that was where I saw it in the book itself or was mentioned that uh, your childhood might have served as some inspiration for it. Yes, you are spot on, Sam. My childhood was the initial starting point for the novel and I started off writing little vignettes about what it had been like in my childhood. And interestingly, I only just thought of this the other day, mm. interestingly, when I was writing those little vignettes, I was always writing about joy and I didn't, it wasn't me. So mm. that's kind of really interesting. I always did have this sort of slightly detached way about writing about it. And it could be that, you know, lots of years had passed, but also maybe I'm sure there'll be some psychologists out there who will have a word or a term for this, but I think it was also about kind of, you know, a level of detachment. Mm, I was going to say something like dissociation or something like that. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But not in a, um, you know, I mean, I completely understood what had happened and uh, and I didn't think that it was to someone else or anything like that. But I think that if you come to write about it, it can be really difficult if you're trying to write memoir about mm. a difficult time. So, I don't know, I sidestepped that and just started writing um I guess, you know, creative non-fiction hmm. and then it morphed at some point into fiction and that was a big relief. <laughs> I have to tell you, it was really good when I thought, oh, I, I don't have to stick to the truth. I can actually mess around with it a bit and uh, so that's what I started doing. So um, the things that are true in the novel are pretty much the family and the family dynamics 
and the physical setting, so the dam, the rubbish tank, the house, the farm, the wall hanging on the wall, um, all of that's pretty much exactly as it was. And then the family dynamics are pretty much exactly as it was too. Um, but then luckily Wendy came along mm. into the novel and then she disappeared, which was even better. Um, and, yeah, so a whole lot of things started unfolding around that. So, God, I, Yeah, the whole time I was reading it, I thought that I was like, oh, Lynn, the fact that you've gone through a lot of this, I was like, oh, my goodness. But... So, so it started off as a series of kind of like uh, creative nonfiction and then what it sort of aggregated into a novel and the characters kind of came to life as I kind of... Oh, gee, it would be nice if it was just that straightforward, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, um, I had a lot of maybe what Sylvia Plath calls crippling self-doubt, mm. um, which I think could be pretty easily traced back to my father his mm. legacy and um so i was writing these pieces but not doing anything with them and then i was my day job is to write things for organizations and companies and stuff like that and i was um in a contract that i had years and years and years ago i was sitting next to a person doing the same kind of technical writing who was a poet and so we started talking about our creative writing endeavors and we agreed that we would show each other what we had been doing. So he was the first person to kind of read it and, and he really liked them and said, and he, I think I have this right, he said, you should write a novel, put all these together and turn it into a novel. Mm. And I thought, yeah, maybe I will do that. So I just kept writing more and more and more and then um, at some point... I went back to uni. I went and did a postgrad diploma in creative writing at Melbourne Uni, and then I went straight from that, or pretty much straight from that, into a master's. And so I just kept writing and writing and writing. And most of what I was writing were um, different scenes that ended up in the novel. And at some point in my head, I switched from writing yeah, vignettes or scenes into yeah, I have to string all of these together. Um, and then I. After I did my master's, I went off and did a novel writing masterclass with Anthony Yark. Who I did see the mention of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, um, and that was where I met, you know, a lot of other writers, including some, you know, some who've become friends like J.P. Mare. And, um, and I, I kind of started to get a feel for what I would have to do to turn this into a novel. And I thought, right. I, uh, it's now or never because mm. I'm not a spoon chicken, and um, I thought, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bloody well do this. So I just got serious about it and turned it turned it into a novel. And then, yeah, as, as I said, it's not like you wave a magic wand. So a lot of lot of hard work, but I loved it. You know, I just absolutely loved it, and I loved the writing community in Melbourne, and and now I've met people in other states as well since the book's been published and uh, you know the support and enthusiasm that people show when you're in those early stages and and after you sign the deal and all of that it, and then after the book comes out it's just phenomenal but some of those early in those early um, times when I was drafting and really on one level didn't know what I was doing even the support that I got was just really amazing so a lot of people to thank yeah, I mean, it was a it was a good size length of acknowledgements there, so it was like lots of food for thought. And obviously, it is a it is a it is a process. Totally agree with you there. And um, I kind of want to delve a little bit more into the the kind of uh, challenges that you might have faced there a little bit later. But let's first yeah. start off with 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 the way in which the novel sort of opens because it's good it's a good scene setup for what um what the the story is going to kind of be about. And it mainly focuses around the the belt, the belt, which is something which is this fixture, or this this seemingly innocuous from from the outset, seemingly innocuous item, and it contains or is imbued with so much power, lasting power. I found that kind of withstands a lifetime of age and all that sort of thing. I want you to talk a little bit about 
what an item that at least started off its life or at least when it was manufactured as something innocuous and to serve a purpose could then kind of contain this absolutely terrifying sort of sinister power imbued with it. What, um, what is it that does that with objects, Lynn? Mm, that's a very good question. And it's interesting when you just said that it, it was an innocuous object and I thought, gee, I have never ever in my life thought a belt is an innocuous object. Mm. Because it has always been associated with that that trauma. So, um, yeah, that's a really good question. I wish you'd warned me about that question, Sam. I've got a more intelligent answer. But um, I, I think, yeah, it's true that, and I think writers are very good mm. at in, imbuing an object with much more than it might seem to have on the surface so I don't know I, I really love language and words and so on and I, I always think about how words have what I'm I know are called denotations which is this is what it is so if I say book then you know we all have, get a picture of a book in our minds uh, and we understand what that is but then there are all the connotations and the layers of meaning that are added because of cultural significance or maybe a personal significance. So something like the belt has a particularly personal significance for me that I totally cannot disassociate the denotation from the connotation, mm -hmm. the other meaning that that belt has for me at any rate. And, and then, you know, a word like book has connotations. I'm sure lots of listeners will get this, that there's so much more to a book than just a bit of cardboard that has a picture on the front and then paper with funny little symbols all over it. That That's true. The word true. book has so, you know, will convey so much more to so many of us. So, I don't know, mate, I think it's perhaps a, a very cultural thing and it's, you know, what our lives bring to, to any one thing and maybe hopefully what writers and, and people like poets and um, I was think um, people who write music and write songs as well, that there's some way that we have of either drawing on those connotations or maybe creating those connotations in how we write about something that's innocuous, like a belt or a book or a lamp or, you know, I guess in some respects we have, you know, things like um, you know, sunsets that have particular connotations or, um, you know, some of that sort of thing, idea of symbolism, I guess, mm. is, is part of what's going on there. Yeah, so true. I mean, and you are right. Writers, good writers are certainly, certainly good at sort of evoking that or making you understand something such as what you just talked about then with the example of the belt. I mean, um, the belt to me is innocuous and like you yourself have said, it's never been an innocuous object for you given your, your upbringing. And it's, it's true that writers can do that and, and can convey to you and make you also understand or re resonate with you on some level the, the power, be a great, terrible, uh, imbued within a seemingly innocuous object. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that writers go to some trouble to do that, mm. that we understand, you know, the power of words, the power of language, all that kind of thing but that we take the trouble to do something for our readers that gives them something other than just the denotation of the word, other than just its, you know, dictionary definition, that we can go beyond that. And, um, and maybe, you know, that's how we create tension and conflict and an emotional reaction to what we're writing. And I think, you know, music, people who compose music and write music are, and even play music are really good at doing that. It's not just the notes on the um, the music, the sheet music. It, there's something else going on when people write music and, you know, put these notes together. And you've only got a limited range of notes, like we've only got 26 letters. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, somehow we manage to wrangle them into something that evokes emotion in people. I just think it's just amazing and wonderful. So that's what I, I tried to do a little bit of that. Rest assured, you definitely did that. And I feel that, yeah, what, what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, like there's, there's these, these seemingly simple 
almost kind of overly simple methods in which we do it. So for like 26 letters or only a few notes and yet to convey so much. And that also kind of works with what we just sort of talked about with a belt having hidden meaning or deeper meanings. But then there was the flip side of that I, I felt as well. And the way in which you sort of um, depicted the way in which George Henderson is appreciated by the other community. So they know they don't have any sort of inclination to peer deeper because he's just perceived as, I think it was written something like an upright pillar of the community, serving yeah. elder. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about, have you talk a little bit about how that is something that uh, the setting is somewhat historical, but I think that you'd find that quite contemporary as well, particularly if you've listened to the likes of um, like Jess Hill's uh, The Trap podcast and all that sort of, yeah, she's very good, isn't she? Um, yeah. In terms of that, these are, these are problems that sort of haven't unfortunately gone away. They're still, they're still rampant within society where the public perception of these people is that they're a good family man, they're a pillar of the community and how wrong that is behind closed doors. Talk to me a little bit about that, Lynn, and how you sort of covered oh, that. That, that is such a, a, a succinct way of putting it. There are, we know that this still goes on today. And, in fact, in um, I really try not to read them, but every now and then someone will send me a Goodreads review. So I've read some of the Goodreads reviews. And in one of them, a woman wrote, I guess that kind of thing happened way back then in the 60s and 70s, but not now. And all I could think of was, do you not read headlines where yeah. we read that people have been killed by their intimate partner or their father? And unfortunately, it's mostly males, but I know that sometimes it, it is females too. Mm. And, and the neighbours all say things like, he was such a great bloke. Mm. Mm. And, you know, he coached the local footy team or he played in the cricket, local cricket team or he did this or he did that. And... But behind closed doors, something else is going on. And, you know, I, I would have loved, you know, I obviously admired Jess Hill and her work enormously. Mm. I, I'm not sure that I could have done something and certainly not as well as she did. But I felt that in, if we portrayed some of this in fiction, it might give people an understanding of what it was like and to stop and think and say, well, yeah, for some reason there are some people who present very different personas and we probably all do to some extent in different situations. Like when we're going for a job, we're probably very different to when we're having drinks on, you know, Friday night with our mates, that sort of thing. Um, but, um, you know, there's a real Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde thing going mm. on with a lot of people and, and my dad was one of those. And um, I could see why people absolutely admired and adored him. Um, but, yeah, behind closed doors he was a very different person and um, wanted to be in control. And I think that was the key thing. In retrospect, I can look back and say I think that was his issue. He wanted everything to be under his control and manageable and I think probably having kids frightened him and sort of jolted him out of maybe what had been a, a relatively relatively easy life up until then. And he and he wanted to maintain this persona of perfection that he had in the community. So his children had to be perfect, and you know, no children are perfect. So um, on one level, we perhaps constantly demonstrated to him that he didn't have control and so that um, his way of maintaining control grew stronger and you know, meaner, I guess. So um, I, I don't know if that's what's happening with a lot of other people who have the Dr Jekyll, Mr Hyde thing going on, but absolutely we have people who present one persona um, to the outside world and have another one inside. And we keep hearing about it. It's in the news all the time. And, mm. and we've prob we probably all know people that have suffered. You know, I, I, I know people who have suffered, who've been, um, you know, the victim of domestic abuse and I had absolutely no idea, absolutely no idea. And I know I have friends whose 
uh, you know, who are very close to, I just have to be careful to say, very close to people who've molested children, their own children or their stepchildren and things like that. And my friends had absolutely no idea that this was going on. So it, it's quite astounding how people can lead such double lives. It's so true. And I mean, yeah, the, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is referenced throughout the, the silent listener and with, with good reason. I mean, it is very much a case of, and you kind of touched on and mentioned there as well with control. I guess it's just another facet of control is the persona, the public persona and how it's this contained rage that can be contained within a certain area, i.e. the family home when the doors closed, but then outside. Uh, one such example I found was when pretty early on, I think Colin spilt some milk and uh, Joy was observing it. I don't want to give too much for a spoiler, but Joy was observing it, expecting there to be immediate violent repercussions. And there just wasn't like he clapped his hand on it, clapped his hand on his arm to show that it was all okay and stuff like that. And it's incredible that there can be these sort of situations in which someone who is a kind of a perpetrator of horrific abuse can then distinguish between who to target and who not and what's the right situation and setting and what's not. Yeah, and I think that says a lot too about the fact that to some extent this is manage. These people could manage their anger and they could and did make decisions about how they were going to treat different people mm. because I think if it's not just that they have a short fuse or that, you know, that they're drunk, for example, although my father's case, that was never um, a situation. He didn't ever touch alcohol. Um, but, it, you know, they, they can control their anger and we think that when we see people who are angry and lashing out that they're not in control. But personally I, I dispute that because I've seen people who, yeah, choose who do I lose um, who do I lose my temper with? Mm. Ironically, it's the people I claim to love. It's just such a bizarre thing. And the so people bizarre. like, you know, my neighbours, my friends, my work colleagues, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, I, I I don't lose my temper. I stay cool and calm and in control. So I think that, you know, on one level, it's much in control when they lash out in anger to people they love, claim to love. Speaking about the people that they claim to love and who they lash out to. So we've talked a little bit about obviously a perpetrator of this sort of horrific abuse in terms of the victims as well. And obviously throughout the silent listener, I just marveled at just how authentic it was. And just at the same time, thinking about you going through whatever you went through, um, I was thinking also as well about the way in which terror is depicted and likening it or describing it as the eels. And I, first of all, I've never eaten an eel. I have no interest in eating an eel. I do not think I would enjoy that at all. I mean, they're, they're cool looking and stuff like that, but I would never want to eat one. But you, the way in which you utilise that as a description similarly for, for terror and how it's there. And the thing that I took away from it as well and is that terror... Never terror can subside, but terror never is banished altogether when you're in this sort of situation. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that as well, if I kind of got that right, if this was something that you wanted to address and depict accordingly. Yeah, I definitely wanted to depict this constant underlying simmering fear, anxiety, terror that joy and... Um, her family experienced, partly because I realised once I left home and I guess started maturing and, and being very observant of how other people behaved in the world, that I realised, I guess I always knew it intellectually, but somehow emotionally perhaps I hadn't worked out that people who didn't have a childhood like that approached all sorts of things in the world very differently. And for me, it seemed that they had a lot more confidence, a lot more belief in their ability to do things and their value in the world and the value of their opinions and things like that. And the more I observed and watched and sort of grew up and all that kind of thing, the more I realised that this 
these were experiences that dramatically framed and shaped who I am and it's really hard to get away from it even now you know my father's legacy is still there and I decided I kind of wanted people to to understand what it was like and that not everybody has a childhood where they're told that they can do anything that they and that they're wonderful and that yes their opinions matter and you know where they would like to I don't know go for a holiday or what flavor ice cream they'd like to have all, all sorts of things that most people take for granted which is a good thing but it's not the experience of everybody mm. and that when we judge people and jump to conclusions about how people are or why they are the way they are I think we need to stop sometimes and think, well, I don't know what's happened to them this morning, yesterday, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And people react to their childhoods obviously in different ways. And I think it behoves us to say, well, you know, I'm not going to judge people because I don't know what, what's come before this interaction or what's made them decide to behave this way or make this decision. And, and that, yeah, people, not everybody had the sort of family life that hopefully most people did. Um, I don't know. So, yeah, somehow I wanted to, to, to depict that and I wanted people to kind of, I don't know, almost vicariously live through it. So mm. yeah, there's a lot of grimness in the book and sometimes people talk about that and I, ex I accept that it's not you know, Polly Anna, and they all lived happily ever after story. Um, and I know that some people don't want to, you know, perhaps don't want to read it for that reason, but I, I don't know. I, I would like to think that there's something important here and that, you know, maybe read it, even because even if it is a tough read, maybe you'll experience something that you haven't experienced. And, that, and I think that's what fiction does for us you know we want to read we don't want to read fiction about the lives of someone who lived exactly the same life as us we want to expand what we know about humanity look i'm in total agreement with you and i think that the way in which you've written is probably obviously lived experience as well so that's factoring in but i feel that with certain subjects they're just I feel that there can't be those sort of shrinking violet sort of attitude towards the way in which they're depicted. Cause I think that that would then lessen the impact of what I, I suspect you're trying to convey. And if it's, if it's too easy to digest, I guess, if it's something in which you can read and essentially there's these sort of themes and then you go, Oh, that wasn't too confronting or that wasn't too bad. Then it probably hasn't had the design impact and it probably hasn't left any sort of resonating and lingering message of, you know, forevermore kind of changing your perspective on, on people such as this that have experienced this sort of horrific yeah. home life yeah you know I, I, there's a part of me that would like to write a really uplifting beautiful story and well i have to say my next novel is a bit it's not quite so dark but my next novel is is sort of um similar in that it picks up on something that happens within families and has long-lasting ramifications and um totally different characters setting plot triggering events everything but um or oh, inciting events i should probably say but um um it seems that at least for the moment i'm going to portray some dark sides of humanity yeah well i'm i'm, I'm kind of glad that you do not shy away from that because i think that yeah, that's your writing style. That's what interests you in terms of what you want to create or capture or depict and then, you know, pass that on. So, no, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're, you're doing it like that. I'm not glad that you went through all of this at all and that we're discussing this on this man. That was largely an empirical experience for you, Lynn, but my God, in terms of how you've captured it, it's just, yeah, I've only, the only other book that I've sort of in, uh, encountered, which was somewhat sort of similar, but even then I don't think it was kind of a lived experience of, of yourself, was um, Gabrielle Talent's My Absolute Darling. Have you read oh, I haven't read that. 
Uh, it's, it's beautifully written. It's very, very beautifully written. I think it was longlisted for the Man Booker a few years ago. I met him at the Sydney Writers Festival. But anyway, I digress. That was the that was the only um, kind of one that kind of stood out to me as somewhat similar. And even then, it's not very similar. But it's just it's, right. it's sort of thematically sort of similar in some regards. Um, talk to me a little bit about we've touched on fear. And I wanted to know about this, 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 how it can potentially, and you've mentioned about how you've moved on with your life, but there was still sort of this kind of underlying uh, fear, which can kind of exist always. And I think it kind of, there was a couple of points where it really hit home for me as to how much it can be a lifelong sort of altering uh, malaise sort of lingering in the back of your mind. Uh, when Joy first sees uh, her dying father later on, I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. And there's also a time, I think, in which Vicky mentioned a 50-year-old man uh, seeing his abusive father on his deathbed as well. And I just, it's an incredible uh, depiction of the lingering effects or the lasting effects, I feel, of, of being abused like that. Because it shows that someone, even when they no longer pose a physical threat, you can see that from within a second of glancing at their sort of dying, moribund body that they can still hold this sort of semblance of power. And this is something that's lasted throughout life. Talk to me a little bit about the endurance of that, even when seeing someone on a deathbed. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things going on there. One is that you know, it's pretty well um, researched and documented. I'm sure we've all seen this in action where we do things like, as an adult, go back to your family home for Christmas or whatever, and or, you know your siblings are there, and your parents and maybe aunts and uncles and things like that. And we all fall back into our patterns of behaviour and interaction that we had when we were children, mm. even though we might be, you know, highly educated, experienced, successful adults, whatever that we, you know, the little bickering that goes on, the sniping or the um, seeking of approval from parents and all those patterns that we learnt as children seem to still be there when a family gets together. All the dynamics seem to be unchanged. So I, I, I think that's part of it, that we um, we don't sometimes learn how to be adults with our parents. Mm. We are always in that role of, you know, the youngest child or the middle child or the first child or whatever it might be, and then with our siblings we're in those roles as well. Um, so... I think that that is a very realistic experience for a lot of people. And then the other thing, the scene where Vicky uh, talks about the man going up to see his father dying, who's, who is dying and he's scared, actually is um, what happened with one of my brothers. I have two brothers. And um, when my father was dying, the one who lives interstate came to see him and um, as they were, so my other brother and I were taking turns to go and help my mum, dealing with the fact that dad was dying and she was in the hospital all the time with him and stuff like that. And so it was my other brother's turn to go up for the day. So my two brothers went up together and um, on the way, they told me later, on the way as they got close to the hospital and it was at the top of a hill and you did have to sort of go up this winding road, a bit like obviously Dracula's castle. And um, at, as they were going, approaching the hospital, my oldest, older brother said, um, I don't want you to leave me alone with Dad. And my other brother said, no, no, knew straight away what he was talking about. I said, no, 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 it's totally fine. He's an old man. He can hardly drink out of a cup of water mm. anymore. It's totally fine. And my other brother said, I don't care. I don't want you to leave me alone with him. And he was shaking. So, um, and he was in his 40s, mm. I think, then. Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah, late 40s probably. Um, he successfully run a multitude of businesses. You know, he was very gregarious, outgoing courageous sort of person but when it came to being in a room by himself with his father he wasn't going to do it mm. and um so that's where I got the idea for that scene 
And I think that it does really show that, you know, the, I guess on a broader level, not just fear, but any interaction that you have with your kids is long lasting. <laughs> know that you have an immense power to shape your kids. And some people do it with love and some people do it with fear. And maybe, the, you know, to be fair to my father, I'm sure he did love us. So there's maybe this weird combination. But, you know, how you treat your kids is important and, and it lives in them forever. So true. I forgot your question, Sam. I think you already <laughs> covered it. Um, we were talking about the lasting effects of, of, of this sort of abuse and then, you, I mean, you, you, you pretty much covered it there, Lynn. Let's talk a little bit about the, so we, we've talked obviously about the impacts of the abuse um, and but being a child within this sort of situation, this case uh, exemplified within Joy, she has such a confusion of emotions for her father. It's alternates between blinding hatred and wanting, you know, terrible things to befall him, envisioning her cutting off his head as one of Ruth Chook's heads, uh, that sort of thing. But then there's also times where she feels such shame or disgust herself for feeling or wanting kind of terrible things to befall him. And mm. I thought that that was such a, such a deft and authentic way of sort of capturing this absolute clashing confusion of emotions. I want you to talk a little bit about that link. So I assume that that's something that's kind of can happen within these sort of situations where you can be um, horrifically tormented and yet still feel bad for wanting, wishing bad on your tormentor. Yeah, I think that's really true. And if that person's your parent, I mean, we do. And we were, my, my brothers and I, we were still, um, you know, we did seek approval all of the time from our father. And so you, you do want to be the person he wants you to be. But, it's, you know, it was extraordinarily difficult, in fact, impossible. And so I think it's pretty normal for children to fluctuate between anger and fear and then yeah this feeling guilty about having these feelings because we're supposed to love our parents unconditionally in the way that they love us unconditionally um or are supposed to at any rate and i think that children are, are working out how the world works and so when they have difficulties they have to work out how am I going to deal with this difficulty but they're not necessarily conscious of the fact that they have to do that it's just an internal struggle that's going on all the time perhaps unless they're particularly astute but I can tell you I wasn't as a child and um you know so we are we're going to move from one emotional state to another and not understand why that happens or how to manage it or how to unpack it we're not going to be able to analyze our own confused emotions that yeah range from guilt to well you know really from hatred and guilt to love and and self self despair and you know a, a level of self-loathing also because yeah I'm never going to be the person my father wants me to be. And so you're going to internalise that as there's something wrong with me and I'm not trying hard enough. And then, you know, we had all, the, um, all this overlaid with the religion yeah. thing. So the whole, you know, heaven and hell. And um, as a child, I didn't really have very many images of heaven, but I had a lot of images of hell. Which is terrible. Like, you know, when I think about it, it's just really terrible. So, oh, did you have? Um, oh, sorry, I was going to say, like, did you have the that that thought? And uh, I've, I found it funny. I think I was supposed to, in terms of Joy's uh, believing that all um, writers might potentially be condemned to hell because they're liars and they're great at lying. Had they never been yeah. to church to learn that all lying is bad? Correct. We, yeah, that's right. We, yeah, every, every, in our household, seriously, everyone was going to hell except white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, preferably the peace of Presbyterian. But 
the Methodists and Baptists and I think there's a couple of other denominations, Church of England, so on, they, they had a pretty good chance of going to heaven, but, you know, it was going to be touch and go. Everybody else, every other religion, every other skin colour, of course, every other culture, um, that everyone was going to hell. And, and so, yeah, liar, and, and liars, thieves, heathens, everyone, they were all going to hell. Heaven was, only, heaven was going to be a pretty small place. Yeah, well, definitely, you're never going to worry about it becoming overcrowded. I think even, like, the Felicities and they were sort of worrying, um, Joy was worried about them because she was like, well, they're rich. So and you, I think you like and described it as, like, it's trying to fit a camel through a needle if you're rich and trying to get into the kingdom of heaven, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, Joy was worried about them because they were rich. And so, yeah, rich people were never going to get into the kingdom of heaven either. Well, again, you, you could, you might, but um, there was a lot. A lot of things that you had to do so um yeah i don't know i just had this overriding thing and i, I think i had an probably an overactive imagination as a kid so those um yeah images of hell and you know some of them i've, I've got in the book where you know all the chinese people were going to hell all the black people were going to hell all the catholic catholics were particular target of scorn and um distaste from my father Every Catholic was definitely going to hell. Um, so, yeah, I just had this, I don't know, maybe constant reminder and, yeah, I had this overactive imagination and I just kept seeing people in hell or, or on their way doomed to hell. So, um, I don't know, a few images in the book of people on their way to hell. Absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned the overactive imagination because one of my favourite things with the book was Joy's imagination and it was capable of conjuring up the most exquisite kind of vivid imagery of, of beauty and then of the most grotesque sort of atrocities as well. And kind of obviously paired or married with that as her love of words. Obviously, you're a lover of words as well. And I feel that the, the love of words, particularly the interesting way in which she conjured up images and wondered aloud to other people, I think Miss Felicity gave her a book to, to write them down, but wondering about if you, if other people see the same images that bring to a conjured to mind when she thinks of certain words. But what I wanted to ask you about is because I felt like certainly within the, the context of, of joy and potentially yourself, if a love of words can enable you or to can allow you to prevail through some pretty hellish sort of circumstances like that, and if that's something that you also wanted to try and maybe explore and convey within the song listener. Mm, I think for me as a child, it was more my love of reading, mm. which, and the two are hard to distinguish between. Certainly I, I was lucky that, um, when I got to high school at any rate, there were a lot of books for me to read. Um, not so many when I was at primary school because I just went to a little country primary school and we never went, we never went to a library. <laughs> totally not part of my existence at all or a bookshop. Um, so, but I did, I absolutely loved reading and I read a lot and, you know, like, so many other people who love reading, you know, I was literally reading with a torch under the covers mm. at night time and I devoured books and I, I think that those books, you know, were escapism. Mm. Just, and, and to this day, for me, reading is kind of like a form of meditation. So I don't meditate. I know a lot, a lot of my friends and so many people meditate and say it's just the most wonderful thing. I've tried it and I've never been able to successfully meditate. Um, but when I read, I think I medit it's a form of meditation for me because it takes me completely away from my day-to-day -day world and my concerns and my, you know, all those things where we think I should have said this and I wish I hadn't done that and what about tomorrow and all that sort of thing. All of that just disappeared. So I think as a child, mm. books did that for me as well. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, Lynn, you're speaking absolutely. to my soul there. 
Pardon? You're speaking to my soul there, like in terms of what you're talking about with the reading. I'm so with you on that one, like in terms of, but yeah, I was the kid under the bed as well with the, the torch, uh, kind of like a lifelong insomniac for a, still, still plagued by it today, sometimes here and there. Not as bad as when I was a kid, like just foregoing sleep sometimes. But uh, yeah, yeah I'll just read. And um, yeah, and I, and I totally agree with you as well because it's the one medium that you can really, you, you have to give your undivided attention to. Your eyes can just kind of wander over the, the words, I guess, and you can kind of go, oh shit, I didn't really, I've got to read that again. Um, but in terms of like, if you're watching something, you know, next thing you know, your phone can be in your hand or some other form of distraction. But with reading and the same thing that you said in terms of like, you're closer to meditation. Again, I've tried meditation as well. I've had some really... <laughs> Um, I've been told really good people try and show me how to do it and it just has not worked. Um, but yes, I agree I, with you as well. Yeah. The reading definitely is the closest I feel like I can come to, to meditation yeah. and you're, the rest of your um, stuff can kind of go away and ebb away and you can just focus on the reading. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I don't know. And I think at, I don't know when the two things happened for me, uh, which came first, I should say, whether I loved words and therefore loved reading or loved reading and therefore loved words. But thinking mm. about logically, probably the reading came first because mm. I've learnt to read, you know, at prep, at school, and uh, there was just something about the power of words. And 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 I really genuinely do have words that, or, or there's something going on. I just love the meanings of words. The derivations of words the roots of words i love the sound of words the rhythm of words um when we put particular words together i'm fascinated for example why alliteration works so well mm. even with people who don't love words you know i don't know i just find all of this stuff endlessly fascinating and um i love words about words <laughs> i love books about words I have quite a big collection of them. Um, there's just something about it. And um, so, I, I, so I had to, if, once I sort of worked out who Joy was, I had to have her being a lover of words mm. and then this idea of having her having this form of synesthesia where she sees images when she hears and sees certain words I really, once I found out that that was a, a real thing, I thought, yeah. yep, Joy so absolutely has to have this. <laughs> and, I, and I think it did and does provide her with not just escapism but um, kind of something to hang on to in terms of there's some beauty in the world and, and it's created not just by nature but by other humans. And I think I've just said something that I've never thought about before. That is something that I love about words and writing because we all love, you know, um, nature and it, in its you know, endless array of infinite, you know, array of different kinds of beauty. Um, but I love words because that, and books because it's beauty created by humans, as are many other forms of art, of course. That's such a good way of putting it. Mm. Oh, that's good. I've never thought of that before. So, You're right. <laughs> but no, that's like that. A, that is a really good way of putting it. And I mean, like, um, the infinite library, the infinity library is like, for me, like, that is a, that is a, <laughs> you give me the thumbs up. That is a good place. I, like, personally, myself, uh, without getting too kind of like philosophical, uh, I do not want an afterlife yet, but, uh, or to meet any sort of God. Really don't want that. I'm kind of welcoming oblivion. But if there was, an infinity library, I'm pretty sure I'd be down for that for maybe 100,000 years or something like that and then just switch me off. Yeah. And I think, um, uh, you know, like if I was to describe heaven, mm. for me it would be that I, could read, that I could read any book that I wanted to and that I would have the time to read yeah. and every book that I wanted to. Because that's sort of part of the human condition, isn't it? That we know we don't have time to do everything that we want. And so we have to select which books we read, which plays we go to, which um, music we listen to, which the people we hang out with. All, and every time we make a decision, we're eating into that limited amount of time that we have. So, so it would be, yeah, an infinite number of books and, the, and all the time that I needed in which to read them. 
But I always think also um, when I read Gulliver's Travels, I think I was about 20 when I read that, and not just the um, the really famous story about Lilliput, the first um, place that he goes to, but in one of the other places that he goes to, um, there are some people who um, are immortal and they live forever and there's the society can't, there's no telling who these people are going to be. It's not genetic. It's not passed down through families or anything like that. Just every now and then there's a person who can live forever or who does live forever. And Gulliver thinks, oh, my God, I've got to meet these people. They're going to know so much. They're going to be fonts of infinite wisdom. They're going to have, you know, pursued every field of study that there is and they're just going to be the most wonderful people so he goes to meet one of them and it's a woman and she's just the grumpiest most bad-tempered dissatisfied person and Gull says I don't understand you could you know you could learn every language you could read every book you could learn how to play every musical instrument and all of these sorts of things and she said yeah but why I can do that any time. I don't have to do it now. I can do it in 600 years' time. Why? And and so they did nothing. Yeah. They, they didn't pursue any of those things that the rest of us would think, oh, yeah, if I, this would be wonderful. I'd have all the time in the world to read every book. But they weren't They weren't reading. They weren't doing anything. Uh, I always think, yeah, that you know, this human condition that we're going to die actually yeah. drives us to do these things. I guess it's like, yeah, there's, there's, it's, I guess it's to each his own in terms of <clears throat> people that have this limitless time frame, and you say, oh, I would do this or I would do that. And then some of them are the people, it's just like life, I guess. They squander it and they go, oh, I don't really, I could do that, but like, why would I do that? No, I'd much rather um, leave the immortality to more deserving folks like Jeff Bezos. Than, <laughs> <laughs> than, I don't uh, know that anyone deserves it. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, there probably are some people who do. Yeah, Jeff Bezos, <laughs> paramount among them. But um, look, let's let's end, Lynn, with a question I always like to ask. And you've touched on the masterclass. You've touched on the, the sort of like the, the origins, the provenance of the silent listener. But what I really want to know, and particularly with you and your sort of deeply personal story there, is was there a time, whether it was a certain period, where it was an instant, it could have been just a moment where you really almost said no and put put down the pen or the digital equivalent and said, no, I'm not going to pro pro progress with this any further. And if that was the case and you didn't encounter or find out yourself in a such situation, what sort of prevailed that kept you going through that? Yeah. So there were quite a few times, mm. probably most significantly towards the beginning and then towards the end. Sure. So in the beginning, I, yeah, crippled by self-doubt. I mm. did not think that, maybe I was good enough. It's probably the easiest, quickest way of saying that. Um, but I did have the, I was lucky enough to have a very supportive um, group behind me or, and a few groups actually. And so I thought I have to keep going because otherwise I'm going to have let them down maybe or I don't know, I'll have been a fake. I don't know, something like that. I thought I'll just keep going, I'll just keep going. And the other time was very much towards the end. So after I'd signed the deal with Penguin and um, we had gone through the structural edit and then at one point we decided to make a really significant, um, not so much a change to the plot, but a uh, one of the reveals, I'm just going to say that, one of the um, twists and one of the reveals and um, I remember Bev at Penguin saying when we were talking about it and we kind of agreed on what it would be, we went through a couple of possibilities and she said, look, I don't think it'll take very long for you to do that. I think that, you know, given the state that the manuscript is in now, it, it won't take you very long to do that. And I thought, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Well, I took 400 hours to chain, make that change and make it consistently and authentically throughout the whole novel. And because I kept track of my hours. <laughs> I'm trying to work that out. So what we do, that's like, like even I'm useless at maths, but like say you do 12 hours a day, um, seven days a week, that's still what? 
six yeah. six weeks, eight weeks or something, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. and I think it took me about, in fact, about two months. Oh well, that's about eight weeks, isn't it? it might have been a little bit more than that. And at, and at one point, so not only do I have to change the um, the words, really, what happened was that I had to change the order in which a whole lot of things happened. Mm. And once I started doing that, you know, it was like, it's like pulling a jumper. The threads just keep coming and then I had to put it all back together again. And at one point I just thought, I, I don't know that I can do this. You know, I think I've bitten off more than I can chew. But what got me through was, um, I think I said earlier, my day job is to write things for organisations. Mm. And so once I'm contracted to do something, I have to do it. It would be, you know, couldn't say no I'm not doing it and sometimes things get pretty difficult with those jobs too especially really big ones and lots of factors involved but I know that if I just keep going if I, I just have to chip away at it and and that's what I did I thought okay if I can do it for clients I can damn well do it for me and so I just thought right I just ha I had this massive list huge pages and pages of things that I had to change and do and I just I just did them one by one and sometimes I'd cross one off and it would generate another three things that I had to do somewhere else and I just thought I'm just going to keep going I'm just going to keep going I'm just going to keep going and and that was you know after I'd signed the deal with Penguin so there was also that commitment <laughs> so um but that's what I did I just kept going so it's like Annie Lamott's bird by bird Mm. I love the reasoning that you said there. Like, if I do this for clients, I can damn well do it for myself. That's so, that's so true, man. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've been doing it for clients for many years and, and hadn't got around to doing it for me. So that's it. I'm doing this for me. Well, then I'm so glad that you did uh, and push through, especially with, uh, yeah, you, you really, for a debut novel, it's a serious, serious, serious undertaking. So... I'm really, really glad that you did push through with it and that uh, leap forward and get to speak to, and I get to speak to you on the program yeah. because, yeah. That's yeah. great, Sam. They're lovely words. Thank you very much. No, seriously. Well, meaning it, meaning it well. And, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking to me today on the program. That's my pleasure too. Thank you, Sam. It's been great. I love, love how you do all this great stuff to promote writers it's oh, thanks heaps Lino. that's really nice of you like yeah like it's been it's been a wild it's been a wild year i tell i'll i'll, I'll tell you that Lena. it's been an absolutely wild year yeah like i've been doing the the interviewing and stuff for like five years in digital yeah. and print and then i was like i was scared i was a wuss you know i was like oh you know, I'm not really technologically savvy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to figure out how to do this sort of stuff with podcasting. And I was like, nah, I'll, I'll give it a red hot go. And, you know, I did some tutorials, like double lot of tutorials on YouTube and all this sort of thing. And it just, it just escalated from there. I think that your interview, this episode, I think is like the 40th in under oh, wow. a year. That's so it's been great. going gangbusters and yeah okay. and everyone's been really cool and yeah anyway i digress it's just the what a no, point i was trying to get to in a very long-winded way is it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure talking to you and thank you so much right. for appearing thank you uh, yeah as i said an absolute pleasure for me too and i think that's really interesting that you you know you you said that you're a wuss and that you you weren't sure whether you you know you weren't sure whether you're brave enough to do it or not i think sometimes we hide behind this persona that oh yeah i know what i'm doing and i'm i'm totally in control and i'm cool and i'm confident and everything and sometimes it's nice to hear that other people have been um yeah tentative about doing stuff like this but this is great and it has been successful and people love it i know so yeah that's so on. good to hear no seriously i really appreciate it Lynn. bless you thank you so much for appearing on the show and you too mutual admiration society <laughs> absolutely so everyone, that was Lynn Yao talking to me about her truly incredible debut novel, The Silent Listener. Uh, so you cannot thank Lynn enough for talking to me on the program. As you can hear, I was probably gleaned from my voice tone as well as the discussion itself. It was an incredible discussion. I was absolutely so privileged to talk to Lynn. She's a lovely human being. I'm so glad that she pushed through with the, the hardships and Nate 
within the writing of a novel and particularly within her own sort of uh, scope there of her lived experience to to push through and then write The Silent Listener and then ultimately come and talk to me on the program. So yes, can't stress enough. Thank you so much to Lynn Yowett for talking to me on the program. I will, to that end, of course, also put into the description slash bio of this particular episode the links to Penguin Random Houses, uh, who was Lynn's publisher for The Silent Listener. So you guys can get your hands on a copy of that as well. And in addition to that, huge thank you to you, listener, as always, for listening to this particular episode of the podcast, as well as the ever-proliferating back catalogue there. If you haven't already, be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on. And yeah, go back and listen to the other catalogue, the other uh, episodes that comprise the catalogue, getting up to, getting kissing close to 50 episodes of the show within under a year's time. So I consider that an an all-round achievement, uh, exceeding far beyond what I possibly could have thought uh, from the outset. But yeah, thank you to you. Stay safe, get jabbed if you haven't already. Support your local bookshops, particularly within those in Sydney and Melbourne. And stay tuned, a lot more episodes coming out to you now. Thank you.